0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shouting from the Sidelines. You are joined by me, Luke, and Nick from FootTech Today, and delighted to have Andy Barker with us. Um, Andy's going to introduce himself in a second, but Andy is a, is a physio, a consultant physio, who's worked at the elite level of sport, in particularly in rugby league. Um, currently, consultant physio for the FA, working with their international teams at under-15 to under-20 level, men's and, and women's. Um, so he's got some great experiences to share with us, as well as talking about um, injury prevention for children and just some of his experiences, really, which will be really interesting. Andy, thank you for coming on. Um, and can can you just introduce yourself a little bit, Andy, just further to what I've said? Uh, yeah, firstly,
1: thanks for thanks for having, having me on. Look, um, yeah, so my physio physio by trade uh, went a long way around, sort of getting into the uh, into the sort of profession, really. So. Grew up enjoying sport, football and rugby, probably realised quite early I wasn't going to be uh, any good to, or good enough anyway to uh, to make a career out of myself, um, but I uh, obviously really liked sport and I think probably the day I realised you could, I guess, work in sport, work really closely with the players, um, I was really interested in about how the human body works, so once I sort of pieced those two things together, I sort of uh, went down that sort of route really, so studied uh, physiotherapy and then I was very lucky to get a job straight from university so it was off the back of a like student placement as part of mm. the studies at the Leeds Rhinos uh, and then I spent sort of 10 seasons there so a couple of years as like the assistant physio and then eight years as the first team physio at the Leeds Rhinos and it sort of a, I was there at a time when um, they had some really good success so between sort of 2009 and, and 2018 so that's almost like the golden,
2: mm. golden
1: decade really which was obviously a really good, good, good time to be there and then sort of since then since having a sort of family, um, just wanting to sort of move, transition out of full-time sport, it's, it's good, and there's probably all the good points that way, all the bad points, but it is very time-consuming, a lot of unsociable hours, and obviously having two, two young kids now myself, I to spend a bit more time with them, so I've transitioned now, still working sport, and do some consultancy work, like you say, at the, at the FA, which is really good, I really enjoy it, been a big change, I also do some more consultancy work, still within rugby, rugby union, rugby league, and also spend my time. Best of my days really working in my, my clinic in Leeds.
0: Brilliant. Um yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the Rhinos um, later on because I think you've been quite modest there. I think it was probably their best, their best ever <laughs> period, wasn't it, when you joined in the the success they had was, was fantastic. So yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in a in a second. Um so we wanted to get you on, like we say, because I think for, you could talk about experiences at elite level sport, but obviously now you can also talk about uh, as a physio the things that you see in, in children from a movement perspective and injury prevention perspective and so forth um you played sport as well andy uh, you played at a good level of, of of rugby so you know you know you know what it takes to to get to that next stage i think you've seen the the good the bad and the ugly of it um what what i wanted to kick off with is, is to is to ask you really the main differences that you've seen with regards that stuff. So, so the differences that you see in the players that ended up going into elite level rugby league to those that maybe didn't academy level and uh, weren't quite there. And then obviously from a football perspective as well and what you're seeing now.
1: Yeah, I think, I think there's probably more similarities than natural differences really, if you were going to compare say my time in rugby and and what I've seen already in in sort of football. So I think if you're using that maybe transition from academy to a first team level, whether that's football, rugby or or any other sort of sport, you could sort of apply that to, um, I think, more of it comes down to um, probably their mentality. So in terms of how, how kids at that age, because they are, they are still kids enough talking 16, 17, 18, um, sort of uh, apply, their, apply themselves. And it's probably no coincidence that that at probably time in life, there's a lot of other, I guess, distractions that can come about in terms of like socialising, you know, going out on the tiles with, with the friends, doing other things. Um, I think there's obviously so many more distractions now for people's time um, than probably when we were that age, even in terms of like social media and net Netflix and things like that. Just um, everything's obviously built um, and all these companies know how to to draw people's attention away from, from other things. So to try and keep focused on, I guess, whatever that is, whether that's, you know, wanting to be a professional football or rugby player is probably even more difficult than, than it ever was really. But the for the guys that I've seen probably progress, probably at, the, at that level or probably in terms of physical ability or, or skill level, uh, probably not not too dissimilar but the ones that push on are probably those that that probably do make those sort of of sacrifices at at that sort of age and and some of the sacrifices as well are not not so much just on maybe on the players themselves particularly at that age if they're not driving and there's a lot of sacrifices from parents Mm. um, that you see sometimes and some people are more fortunate than other people in terms of they've got really supportive parents and people around them to to help them out and obviously other people have not maybe quite got that support which i guess makes that a little bit more difficult but you will always get exceptions to the rule, so you will get those those sort of freaks who who are um, are really good at what, what their respective sport they do, and not necessarily have the the best work ethic, uh, but will still make it to that level. But they're sort of few and few and far between. And um, I guess, yeah, having I guess that great mentality really. And I guess I, going back, if I compare sport, probably time when I first started in rugby to now even. I think there's a, there's a bit of a change as well in almost the, the mentality of, of young people. And, and I see this as well, not just in sport, but even from like student and soon to be qualified therapist, there's almost like a bit more of an entitlement and yeah. whether that's a societal title thing or what where the sort of qualify, um, you know, therapists And you know, I went straight to sport from, um, from university, but I worked so hard at uni and I was, and I, I, did, I got basically given an opportunity when I was still studying. And every day I wasn't in uni or I wasn't working for my old man on a building site, I was down at the club, just not getting paid. And obviously that led to obviously a, a job, whereas a lot of students now, um, given opportunities like that, don't take them for whatever reason, because they're too I got, uh, engrossed in other things that are going on. And I don't know why, I don't even know the real answer to why that's happening, but it obviously cuts a lot of uh, opportunities off for, for young people, which is, I guess, a bit unfortunate.
0: Definitely, I think um, that entitlement thing is uh, is interesting, and it's something that I think is is creeping into society more and more. Um, and I think it's a trickle down effect. You look at you know sort of our maybe grandparents, great grandparents, the stuff that they went through, and then as time's gone on, we've been given <clears throat> more and more as a society. And I think now with children, they're given all this stuff and have all this distraction, and it is starting to take a have a bit of an impact really that entitlement mentality to the point where we get you know we get people come to us and within a couple of weeks it's oh you know can you can you get them a trial can you get them this can you get them that you think they've not they've not worked hard enough they're not they're not near that that level yet they've got to go and work but everybody wants everything yesterday and they're not prepared to work from the bottom are they to to to, to get to that top level and and speaking of that top level Andy like we said earlier you you have you worked in arguably you know the the best, the best rugby league side, um, certainly of our generation, and and will go down as one of the best ever. You've seen the dedication um, with players like Kevin Sinfield and Jamie Jones Buchanan. I mean, we could go on and on and on. What what do you think? How how did they set the standards? Those players, Andy, how did they conduct themselves? And you know that level of dedication. What did it look like?
1: So exactly what you just said there—that the, the players like set the standards almost. So they they were um, really close knit group. Obviously, it's well known that a lot of them came through the, the sort of academy system, and a lot of them came through around a similar time. So when they when they sort of first started playing first team rugby at the club, the, the still Leeds was still a good team, but they were second best to Wigan and a couple of a couple of the clubs at the time. And all these young players um, were sort of given their given their opportunity at the time, um, which. Again, going back to that sort of period and era, a lot of big clubs would be spending loads of cash on players from the NRL in Australia and internationals there on on, on big big money. Uh, the exchange rate then was a bit daft, so like players would come over and could earn a lot of money over here, but players were coming over at the back end of their careers to earn a few quid in Super League as opposed to you know, being in the, probably their, their prime, which was obviously stunting the opportunities for younger players. But a lot of those guys were given... Uh, a chance early, and they didn't win anything for a few, few, for a few sort of seasons. But they won the first title, I think, in 2004, which was Leeds's first title for like 30 odd years at the time. And that was the same team that pretty much stayed there for the next sort of 10, 10 years really. So I think that consistency in like playing group, and there was obviously not a lot of changes uh, staff-wise really as well. That's you know, I obviously didn't start till working there till about 2010, but even before then there was a really quite consistent. Group not a lot of changes and I think that bit credit to like the the sort of board and the club who sort of stuck by coaches when things weren't going well at certain times and and some of the staff So, um, but I think again the the players drove the sort of culture and made each other accountable. Uh, we're really professional. So if you you mentioned like Kevin Sinfield there he is without question the most professional like athlete I, I've ever seen and worked with. Just uh, everything he did. Bear in mind he was traveling. It's not particularly that far, but like forty-five minutes from Oldham to Leeds every day. He'd be like the first in the training ground, the last one to leave. Um, very similar. More recently, he's he's not left the club now, but Callum Watkins, obviously again, who obviously was recent captain as well for uh, for Leeds. He, he was exactly the same, um, you know. So I think they they just made each other accountable, and they had a group of players. I think they just again, a lot of them were local lads, a lot of them come through the system, wanted to be there, and uh, and in a, in a salary cap sport all those players because they were obviously awesome players were at the club and were probably getting less money than they could probably have got money at, at any other club. Right. But they probably took took a little bit less cash because they knew they were going to win trophies because they had the best team. Mm. You know, and we and that and that you know there were some teams on, on paper who were probably probably close to, to Leeds but probably not as they've not been together as long. They probably didn't have that um I guess that that connected connectivity that those players sort of had, and and ultimately, like you know, they could probably earn a bit less on their salary, you know. But we know have all these experiences of being in the big finals and winning games, and, and obviously when they win trophies, you usually get a bonus as well. So the salary is probably equal to what it would have been, you not know, playing at a middle of the middle of the table club. But you know, that's, that's that again. It's part of the reason probably
0: why they weren't were so successful. Mm. And, and then you talk there about Kevin Sinfield, first on, last off it just seems to be a common theme whenever we speak to people in sport that have worked at that that high level that even the best players that they, they're just they work so hard and continuously work hard as well um it's just there's just no secret to it is there it's it just just it's just work and work and work no
1: no, it's 100% and then particularly in sport you know sports you know, depending on, on where you're working and particular uh, football's been football's a bit like that, not necessarily in my experience, but talking about these like one percent things and players getting like cryo chambers in their houses and all these little bits and pieces, but you know, all that's second secondary to all the to doing all the simple things really well, just like eating well, sleeping well and doing things consistently well. Yeah. You know, not to say, you know, some of those best players either the whether it's at the rhinos or in other sports, you know, don't enjoy having a beer or having McDonald's now and again, you know, that's 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 cool. But they don't do that every day of the week. They don't do that consistently or every weekend. It's you know, it's a bit of a bit of a treat if you like after a game or something or something like that. But I think it's just doing the consistent things, you know, well over and over again and obviously it pays it pays well in the in the long term. And, and particularly in sport, you know, I think players it, it, it depends on the individual circumstances, but you'll see some players who have maybe uh, injuries early in the career, um take obviously working as a physio and, and you'll see it almost like scares them a little bit. So they'll be like, you no, know, I, I could have that injury could have been the end of, of me. And um, for some players it is, if it happens at the you know, unfortunately at the wrong time, sometimes with contracts and things like that. But they they sort of have that experience and it's like, you know, I, I wanna look after myself in the mm-hmm. best way that I can. So control everything that I can. You know, there's some things you can't control. You're playing football running down the wing and someone, you know, comes in, bad challenge and, you know, you're getting your injury out for the season or whatever. You know, there's not much you can do about that, but you can control a lot of your things that, I guess, that go on um, outside, of,
0: outside of that environment. You, you mentioned as well um, the, the fitness thing earlier. The, the, that seems to crop up a lot as well when you're talking there about things you can control. You can control how, how much you go out for a run how hard you work in a gym and things like that. And I think um, we were saying off air, I think it was something I listened to about Jamie Jones, Buchanan, who's recently retired, who I think he ran to training, didn't he? I think he ran to training, trained, ran home. And you're talking about a guy that um, was still playing higher level rugby league at an an older age, uh, a game that's physically demanding. Because of how hard he worked, it meant his career was just so long. And do, do you think that plays... Did you think that sets some of them apart as well? The fact that they are just fitter because they've worked harder.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And Jamie Jones is a, like a, a prime example of that. And he, I'm not speaking out of turn. He he would say that he's not the best rugby player. He's you know he's made a career out of working really hard. Uh, and he's spoken like, in the media and stuff in the past that he's um his best mates was like Kev. It's Kev Symfield was spoken before, and he and he used to say he basically coming up and growing up, he was like this kid's really good he used to play against each other kev's from lancashire he's from yorkshire they will play against each other all the like county level stuff and he was like then started playing together for like england and etc with in like the youth and then both signed at obviously signed at leeds and played together there and he was like he's really good and then even at a young age i think kev had those sort of attributes and was very professional about what he did and and jones used to just say i used to hang on his like coattails and whatever he did i used to do the same and right. even even the back end of the career like the last couple of seasons uh they both played together kev retired in 2015 uh after the one on treble but that like they'd be two players who were like after a, a session outside and pretty tough they'd, they'd go in the gym and they'd both be sat on like a, a rowing machine doing like 10, 10 200 meter intervals under 40 seconds they you were know, like that, that'd that be them uh and then like you're saying about Jonesy, sometimes he was um it was he was quite hard work because he uh you like say he would like run to training when his ankle were a bit sore and you're like, Jones, you're not helping yourself out here really. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> He's uh but that but that's again, that's again some sometimes he probably did a bit too much True. to his debt to his detriment. But but then again if you took that away from him, he probably wouldn't have made the career that he did. Wouldn't have been one of the trophies that he did. And uh yeah, so you, you actually I guess you sort of have to try and uh, tame some of that sometimes, but you yeah, obviously you don't want to you're not going to tell it too much because that's ultimately one of his probably probably his best attribute. Um,
2: well, what are some of the risks, Andy? I was, I was wondering, as you were describing that—that that sort of sprang to mind. Is there a danger of having to manage workload with some of these players who are utterly obsessed and wanting to train all day every way? I'm thinking of some younger kids listening and I don't know, maybe getting the idea of running to and from school every day. It, it, it just, are there any risks for young? Yeah, kids as well.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's for there's obviously in relation to everything. Everything you do, there's there's probably a, a fine line between obviously pushing yourself and doing a bit, doing things to get better, whether that's physicality or, or whatever. But and then obviously doing too much, and that's ultimately where where kids or or adults will get injured. And I guess it's uh, it's a bit easier in a in a sort of I guess a full time sports environment because pretty much you know everything they you know training that they do. The players do is sort of led by staff, and it's obviously all programmed, and it's all all fits into like a big a big sort of picture. So the way like a I guess a, a season's designed is from start to finish, and there'll be weeks where the the plan to train harder than others, and there'll be big games coming up where they might taper down a little bit. And again, that's more difficult when you're not in those environments because if you're leading a lot of your I guess training, running things yourself, but um, even at a younger age, you, you probably know. Um, you feel like you can run run for like days and days and days, don't you? But um, some of it's sometimes not necessarily doing more. It's just probably being um, a bit smarter with what you're doing. So necessarily going out for run every day, you know, will you get fitter? Yes, but that might not necessarily make you a better rugby player or a better footballer. Um, it's just again, and in cases like that, probably getting some advice and some guidance as to exactly what you what you're doing. Um, again, there's a big difference there between like adults and and sort of kids. Uh, about, again, the type of things that you maybe should, should be doing.
2: And on that, in terms of thinking about injuries in particular, I don't know if we've been uh, just lucky, touch wood, but in five years or so, in terms of things like soft tissue injuries, pulled muscle, or pulled a hamstring, okay, we haven't. Um, what are the differences between children and then... I don't know, our oldest kids are about 12, so at what age would you say that there's maybe a change in terms of how they need to look after themselves physically?
1: Um, yeah, so... A lot of, I guess, a lot of the like youth, I guess, call it youth-based injuries, usually happen from probably like early teens and then and then onwards. And a lot of them like growth-related. Um, so I'm probably not telling you something that you don't know. But as obviously as you um, as you grow, like your bones are not fully fused together, hence why you, obviously your bones get longer and you get taller, etc. Um, and because of that, you get certain conditions that are pretty much specific to to children. So you can get injuries around like the knees and hips, which uh, and not necessarily due to, to overuse or doing too much of an activity, um, but, I guess, more related to their their growing and around puberty. There is cases in terms of, like, activity, doing sometimes too much activity around certain times of growth, so they'll get, like, growth spurts. And if they're heavily, you know, playing football at school, playing rugby one night, cricket, going for a run one night, doing all this sort of stuff, at times like that, um, sometimes they can come into a little bit of trouble, but usually it's just a case of, I don't know taking a few days or slowing down what they're doing for a week or two and then they're generally okay kids tend to be quite robust in terms of they're quite resilient um and and in terms of the type of injuries that you get they generally tend to be those specific like um children's type injuries so you might have heard of conditions like oscar slatters yeah. um yeah and things like that they're really they're sort of common um but and they are linked to activity so people kids who are generally more active and more like to get them but then on the flip side. Um, being obviously being active and being healthy has got obviously over great health benefits. So it's a bit of a, I guess a bit of a trade off between the two yeah. things.
2: We, we've been looking at a lot uh, around uh, that in a similar way in terms of skill development and the benefits from doing not just football and, and a variety of different sports because of the, uh, the benefits there skill wise. In terms of uh, just more from a physical point of view and, and slightly injury, are there benefits from multi-sport in your opinion for, for children to be doing?
1: Yeah, 100%. And you see, you probably see that in, I guess, even adult athletes. Some of the best um, athletes that I've worked with have, were like those, you've know, heard of players who, again, made a career in football or rugby, but uh, probably at 16, 17 had a, like a contract offer from cricket cricket, or, or things like that. And, uh, and it's generally those, I guess, kids who've, I guess, had that, um, exposure, so it doesn't have to mean they have, they have to play rugby Monday, football Tuesday, cricket Wednesday, you know, they might have a passion for one particular sport, and that's obviously great, um, but I think coaches, and I guess that's parents as well, I guess, who have an understanding that other sports, particularly when they're younger, can be really beneficial in terms of just moving. What what the body really loves is, like, variability. So if you're doing the same thing over and over again, like so many people, now, we are recording this that way in, in lockdown, so many people now are spending working from home and having like back pain because they're probably sat in a chair all day in the kitchen table or office or whatever else it's just because the the body's not getting up walking around the office or going for the lunch or whatever and the body just being conditioned to being do one thing whereas the body's not really built to do that and I think the more exposure that we get to other things and that might be just be in a football session doing like playing rugby as part of your warm-up as staff as that sounds um, you know, and it's going to have a lot of carry over and, and kids enjoy it as well don't they so doing things a little bit different um, so I think it's an easy way to I guess incorporate different skills and obviously it can have, have great benefit as well
0: You Andy have sat in the changing rooms um, at games like the Grand Final and and obviously highly charged games in the league and things against the top opponents and you've seen them win you've seen them lose and, and a question question from parents that crops up quite a lot is how how can we help our children deal with failure whether that be uh, at school at sport what have you how did how did those athletes deal with a grand final loss or a big league loss how did they how did they handle that
1: Uh, I think it it probably a bit different really so individuals will deal with things uh, differently and again that will depend on I guess what's uh, their I guess their reasoning thought process about whether why they didn't win. So I guess as an example, if a player's made a few errors in the game, they they might find feel themselves you know guilty almost of of that sort of negative negative result. Um, I think I think overall, um, obviously, generally players don't really like losing, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I think obviously to to strive to win and, and to be better is obviously a good a good attribute to have. But I, I guess it's how you I guess. I guess suddenly flip that working in a, like a team sport where you're playing every week I think it's a lot easier because you, you have very little time to to sort of um, mop around and feel sorry for yourself almost you you sort of try and put that bad performance result to bed and then you, you're literally on with the next game so again in, in a rugby football environment it might be you know it could be three days late you're playing another game so you don't really have the time to time to do to sort of do that but at sort of any level really I think if you you are gonna make mistakes you are gonna things aren't gonna go as well as as what you want but I'm sure even in a bad a bad performance or a bad you know a bad result there's probably some positive things you can pick out of there and again there's things that you can probably pick out that you think I didn't do too well and then it's probably then what what to do about that if that's something then you can go and work on so maybe you were pretty poor in the last quarter of the game and that might relate to like fatigue or fitness so again that's something quite easy you could I guess work to fix up not necessarily in that day but over a sort of period of time it might be a certain like piece of skill or technique that again let you down a couple of times and again I don't know if you obviously footballer design some drills or do some get some coaching on that particular facet of your game again that's obviously going to help so that the chances of that happening again are obviously like guess not not taken away completely but obviously they're going to be reduced I guess
0: you you've worked in obviously like we keep saying you've worked in this this elite level sport you've worked at um or or you've been part of the grassroots game and things like that you've now got kids who are gonna you know maybe go into sport and so forth knowing what you know about it all Andy what what are the key attributes you feel as parents we should be promoting to our children to give them the best possible chances of of going far in sport, or, or indeed going on to do what you've done in it might not be they make it as a pro, but they do they work in a sport they love. What what are the key things you'll be promoting in your kids?
1: Uh, I think we mentioned we mentioned a couple of those probably main things like, and, and there's quite a lot of obviously evidence this in not not just in sport but in in all a lot of different domains that ultimately for someone to be I guess successful, um, they they have to probably enjoy what they're doing and have to they have to want to want to do it. I think obviously, as, as I guess, as parents, obviously some kids obviously need a bit of pushing sometimes. Otherwise, they might just be sat on their iPad or doing whatever else they don't want them to do. But um, but I think there's obviously a level there where where they they obviously need to want to do it themselves, and it's it's those probably kids who do that who are probably going to I guess again, it's you, you don't know, but are probably going to potentially do do better than kids that do. I guess a, there is a, a line again, again that if you push them too too much. Um there'll be a bit of pushback. So Blake, who's my oldest, like, um if I went to him most days, do you want to go outside and kick a ball about it, he'd just say, No, I want to watch like um Avengers Infinity War for the under of time, you know, and sit in the sit on the sofa and watch that. Whereas um just by, by about chance, I don't know whether he knew I was talking to you guys, but he got up this morning, he came into our room fully kicked up in all his football gear, said so like a uh, Argentina top on and his shorts and socks pulled up. Says, oh, I, want to, I want to be a footballer today. So then, again, uh, he, he's obviously, he's only pretty young and four, but he come downstairs for brekkie while well, we're making breakfast, I so just set like a couple of goals up and was kicking a football around. But he probably did some like quite good stuff there, but that was, he he sort of led that, I guess. Yeah. As they get a bit older, obviously they'll um, they'll probably lead more, more of that stuff, some sort of self and set stuff up and he'll play with his younger brother and what have you. But I think obviously enjoyment's massive and, um, you know, and whether that is, um, parents making doing stuff with their kids that to, to make it more enjoyable and get involved or or taking them to to sessions to, to coaching where they they're in an environment that environments that are enjoyable and with other people and kids their own age and uh, and that sort of side of things and I think the other biggest thing um, probably was just that perseverance and like we probably touched on it a little bit in the last sort of question where things aren't going to go well at sometimes and just to sort of sort of stick with it and I think probably the the best example I can probably give of my own experiences as in sport, where I can remember being like, started playing like rugby when I was six or something like that, and uh, wasn't wasn't particularly like, good. I wasn't particularly good at any point in my career, but I remember kids being at like 10, 11, 12 who were like almost like these like gods of rugby, like used to just take about ten players to tackle them and playing for all the all the county level stuff, and um, and then you got to like 12, 13 and then they weren't quite as good. And then you got to 15, 16, and they weren't even playing anymore because everyone had sort of caught with them, overtaken them, and the the player that was the best player in the world, or you know, all these clubs were looking at him when he was 10 years old, was not even playing the sport anymore because he wasn't wasn't that good. Um, so I think, and whether that's the kids are a little bit smaller than other kids, whether they're just not not skill wise at that particular time, I just think you know it's, it's it's a long time between being like five, six, and 15, and obviously a lot can a lot can happen. But I think if if they enjoy it and they want to keep doing it and I think if, if they persevere then they're also going, going to get better at what they're doing and even if they obviously don't make it at the top level of football rugby which we know the chances of doing that are really small anyway um, whether they're going to play you know semi-professional or even amateur sport we, we've also we've all done that as well we you know you have some great friendships don't you and, and you have some great times whether you know whether or not you you're getting paid to do the sport or actually paying, you know, paying your subs and what have you to actually play sport. So I think it's just a great, it's a great environment. And I think sports, you know, to watch, to play, to be involved with. So yeah, I'll definitely be pushing, pushing my kids, just just, just just, just, assuming that they want to do, you know, stay involved and be, and be, be involved in sport.
0: I think Nick, you had a qu- and this probably leads on quite well, actually, when you're talking there about the, the smaller kids and things like that. I think Nick wanted to ask you a little bit about um, it was Rob Burrow, wasn't it, Nick, and how, how he ended up being sort of top of his game.
2: Yeah. yeah. Again, going, going down the the, the, skill, the skill side of things, I mean, rugby, obviously, um, it, when you watch it, it's strength and, and, and size seem, seems quite important. But then you, you see your players like Burrow, and, and obviously it's not all about strength and power. So, yeah, my interest is um, wh- why, what made Burrow different? Um, and, and I suppose the relationship between skill and strength, how how much of training time in young players in rugby is dedicated to developing strength and power, or is it predominantly the skill work and then the size will come as, as you grow?
1: So, so Rob, again, Rob's Rob spoke about this himself, where when he was growing up, he's probably the, the prime example of what, what I was just talking about, where he was really good at what he did, he was really quick, he was a good rugby player, even as a young kid, but he was getting told by clubs that he was too small, he'd never make it, um, you hear this all the time, don't you, with, with certain players who are going you know, to have really good careers. And obviously his, his career has been absolutely fantastic. And, and again, Rob, Rob would tell you himself, he, he obviously knew he was smaller, not as big as other players, but he'd use that to his advantage. So he would, he would, I guess, he'd look at other players who were bigger than him, maybe not as mobile as him. And then obviously just try and beat them with either skill or footwork and being a bit more be faster than them or elusive than them so whereas, you know, if he ran straight at them he'd probably be getting carried off on a, on a stretcher and he, and he knew that himself and did quite, you know, got, got bust up quite a lot of times because he was, you know, I guess in stature um, inferior to some of those guys and, and not as strong and came off the, on the wrong end of it a few times but equally, probably more so, he he made some of the players look silly by, you know, being quicker and more elusive and being able to use his other attributes that he had, I guess, to his uh, his advantage really so, I guess there's always going to be, I guess, some attributes that you know you're not going to get any player that's you know top of the tree in every single you know facet of a of a game, and he probably maximised his his attributes of speed and you know of his footwork and and that those sort of things you know to make up for maybe his other other sort of um, ones that he was lacking in. But in, in saying that, however, they, he was actually still pretty strong. So if you you know some of the some of guy, if you talked in terms of like pound for pound. Yeah, you know, yeah, he was probably as strong, if not stronger, than most you know players in the actual squad. Even though he was like five, five foot, five foot five, I think he was tall, which is you know obviously well below the average height for a not yeah. certain obviously for a for a normal you know a normal bloke really, not not even a rugby player where they're all probably six foot plus.
2: And um, I think it's fingers crossed. It certainly seems to be coming uh, less prominent, but in football, talent identification, you know, stronger, bigger, faster players were getting picked up over potentially better players. Um, It's something that you see in rugby, hasn't it? We know strength is so important in the game.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think so. Rugby is a little bit different to football in terms of that. Clubs can have like sort of an eye on players, but they they generally don't come into rugby rooms a little bit earlier when they're sort of like 14, but rugby league, like players don't come into a club till they're about 15 years old. Whereas obviously football you can get kids in at eight years old, can't you? In like, you know, oh, structured sort of coaching. Yeah, even younger, yeah, yeah. So um it's obviously quite a lot, it's very different in that sort of uh that sort of respects really. But um I guess yeah, I think coaches now, and there's loads of data and against Israel in a lot of sports, rugby's quite heavy in it as well. They'll they'll sort of know the, the general attributes that a player at seventeen, eighteen, twenty Probably needs to have as a as a baseline to to be in with a, a, a good chance of making it if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So again, if there is going to be exceptions, and again, Rob Burrow would be an exception to probably that those sorts of rules. But generally speaking, if you know if they're not, they don't think they're probably going to get to that level in a couple of years or whatever it may be, then they that might not be a player that they they pursue and, and ask to come into their their their, their sort of system. Uh, but obviously, then that's that's the job of those coaches that are in that system. So when they do get players in and maybe they identify that they need to work on certain things, they obviously got then a window to, to obviously help them to, to get to do that to to try and fulfill their potential and get them,
0: you know, improved
1: in the areas that they, they need to improve
0: really. Um yeah, the, the, the academy thing is quite interesting there, because that's there's a there's a little bit of um change, <clears throat> although there was going to be some change coming to the football academy system, but I don't think it is now. Because they would talk of that, like the kids, the kids aren't being kids; they aren't, they aren't allowed to be kids. I think it has, as I say, it has changed slightly, but that's interesting that rugby don't do that until, until well into their teens, which is great because it gives them chance to play at a local level with their mates and enjoy it, enjoy that community feel. Because there is a massive community feel to rugby. Mm-hmm. Um You know, whenever I've been to a grassroots game, the amount of people there. It's all the families and they're all enjoying it. Very, very different to football in some ways in that regard. But it, yeah, that, that's an interesting thing. And there's a lot of research at the minute going into that about is our kids in academies from 4, 5, 6, is that impacting their life ultimately when they are older? Um, and I think there was going to be change coming, but I don't, I don't think that's happening now. But you are seeing that some big clubs like Bayern Munich we spoke recently on a couple of podcasts about that they've, they've canceled their academy to under 11s now. Um, and I think there might be others that fall end up following suit. So yeah, that's, that's quite, I didn't realize that about rugby league. That's, that's interesting. Um, Nick, have you got any more questions for, for Andy before he leaves? Um, yeah, lots, but
2: I will, I will <laughs> pick one that I was interested, not really on anything that we've been, we've been talking about, but, um, Static stretching, Andy, was something that was prominent where when I was growing up, uh training and things like that. What what are the pros and cons?
1: Um so there's a there's a lot of research here about, about stretching and, and like with with most um physical things, it probably the, the answer give you scratch, it depends. So yeah. um in terms of static stretching, what what it, probably the big change has been over the last 10-15 like, years, particularly, is that Um, try is is maybe trying to avoid static stretching particularly pre-activity because there's quite a lot of evidence now to suggest that it can actually reduce your ability to um, produce like force and power and actual so again if you were doing that as part of uh, say a warm-up for a football session for example it might actually be a detriment not only to I guess um, physical performance but your actual ability to do what you're going to to do, like, say, a football game. Um, Post-activity is a little bit different, where you're, like, I guess, cooling down, if you like, and um, relaxing tissues, where it might be more more advantageous. So the timing of static stretching is obviously is quite important. What you'd be better doing pre-activity um, is more, like, dynamic and movement-based stuff, which, again, which a lot of, I guess, coaches and that are probably aware of now, and that's why it's incorporated a lot into, to like, warm-up-type um, type
2: drills. Any more, Nick? No, no, I'll leave leave them there. Unless you've got any other myths to debunk, Andy. Is there any any (laughs) big big things in the industry at the moment that people do that maybe doesn't have as much value as I think ice baths and things like that spring to mind? Is there anything that you think a lot of people do?
1: Again, yeah, well, again, it's like... Ice is another another, really good uh, topic and there's a lot of evidence, like, pro um, for it and, and against it. And, again, a lot of it comes to do with the timing. So, again... Um, like post-injury, you know, that first maybe like 24 to 48 hours, ice is actually really good. One, it inhibits, like reduces pain and also will help to like reduce inflammation and swelling and things like that. You never actually want to stop inflammation um, because the inflammation is actually the first part of the healing response. So that's why we, um, this is not actually, not, not actually well known, I don't really know why, uh, but like, that's why you should avoid like things like anti-inflammatories immediately post-injury. Because you actually want to, you actually want something to become inflamed. You can, you, you don't want excessive inflammation. So if you can reduce the amount, an ankle is going to swell up or something like that. That's quite helpful because generally you can get moving and get doing things a bit quicker. But you don't want to like stop it, sort of stop it completely. And again, with ice, so ice baths are, uh, are, are okay again for same sort of things. But beyond that, probably 48 hour window, they're only probably really like a pain mediator, so really, they only help to reduce pain a little bit. But that's generally because they just cool the surface of the skin. So obviously for something you don't feel it as much because it's cold. So it's not as painful. So again, you know, people who are routinely using ice, like uh, for an injury that they injured like a month ago, it's it's probably not doing quite as
2: much as um, as what what, what, what they'd like really. Did you have challenges around that though, where for example you you might know that the the impact isn't massive but there's almost a, a placebo effect for the player or they they really buy into it do you kind of have to manage that sometimes
1: yeah 100% and, and particularly in like a in full-time like sports setting where there's, there's access to those things all the time and and again yeah it, it is a trade-off and it is very individual and um, focused um one of the things I've seen really uh, done really really well at at the FA with all the England teams and this is like a a sort of system that's used from the seniors all the way down to sort of the 15s mm-hmm. is that they they promote uh like options in terms of recovery so it's not this is this is what the evidence says this is the best recovery we're doing today this is what you're all doing and making players almost do it it's it's giving them some support and guidance but almost saying right today you've got one of three options to do you're either gonna you know post session they might jump up in the gym and spin, spin the legs over on a bike for 20 minutes and do a bit of foam rolling. You know, One of them might be you know, jumping in the ice bath for 10 minutes um, at more, you know, the higher levels it might be, to jump on with one of the therapists for like a soft tissue massage type thing. And again, a lot of that as well because you're taking players from their club environments into an international environment where what they get club might be one of those three things or might be something different. So you, you're almost trying to... I guess, cater to a certain degree what players like. And some of that is placebo. Some of the, you know, you can see players sometimes, he'd be, more, he'd be better if he went and did that, but he wants to do that. And it's a bit of a, a trade-off. And you can obviously try and educate players as to why they might be better doing certain things. But ultimately, it's going to be, I guess, to a certain point, it's going to be their their sort of choice. Um, and if it obviously makes them feel better, that's, again, that's obviously really important when he's managing... Um, Manager to play at, at any level, you know, amateur or, or professional.
0: Might be uh, probably some good stories about players trying to con you into giving them the all clear to then get back out on the pitch and stuff. When you know full well that uh, no, that I ain't going to happen. Have to get out of training, yeah, get out <laughs> yeah. of training. Yeah,
1: definitely <laughs> a few of them.
0: <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll maybe save them for part two. But um, Andy, can you? Um, can you t- firstly thank you for, for this because yep. we know you're, you're a busy man even during even during lockdown you've got your online clinics and things um can you tell people more about where they can they can find some info out about you and your and your clinics uh
1: yeah so if, if anyone's interested in anything i guess more physio related in terms of like getting into the industry or or some of the stuff i'm doing um that would be probably go to newgradphysio.com that's my website there and then uh, my, my clinic we've got actually a couple of clinics one in manchester and one in leeds uh, and that's Perform Ready Clinic. So if anyone's uh, unfortunate enough to be injured or, or struggling with anything, wants any like advice about anything like that, uh, just go to the website there. So that's PerformReadyClinic.com, uh, and all, obviously all the details and contact stuff is is upon there.
0: Definitely recommend it. Anyone that's um, any any parent out there, any any coach that's got players that have got niggles and things like that, whether you're a child or adult, just it's not it's sometimes just better to get that second opinion or professional opinion before you. You try to play through the pain or whatever. So uh, yeah, give uh, give Andy a shout. Andy, thanks so much for that. Um, we hope to get you on again soon. And uh, yeah, and we'll talk to you later on.
1: No, oh, well, thanks for thanks for having me on, lads.
0: See you soon. See you later. See you soon.